What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Safi Bacall received his PhD in physics from Stanford and his undergraduate degree from Harvard After working as a consultant for McKinsey, Safi co-founded a biotechnology company specializing in developing new drugs for cancer. He led its IPO and served as CEO for 13 years. In 2008, Safi was named Ernst & Young's New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology on the Future of National Research. Safi's most recent endeavor was authoring his new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Loon Shots describes what an idea from physics tells us about the behavior of groups and how teams, companies, and nations can use that to innovate faster and better. It has been selected for the Washington Post's 10 Leadership Books to Watch For in 2019, Inc.'s 10 Business Books You Need to Read in 2019, and Business Insider's 14 Books Everyone Will Be Reading in 2019. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to Globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. Safi, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to have you on. I really enjoyed your new book, Loon Shots. And then the more I researched you, 
the more fascinated and interested I became, it, it was funny, I was sitting and playing with my eight month old son this morning and I couldn't help but think of you and witnessing the learning delta of someone that age and he'll just be sitting there playing with a toy and all of a sudden he'll look at his hand and it's like he's never seen a hand before. And you seem to be someone who's always interested in finding and exploring new things that challenge you. Is this true? Yeah, I think I've always just been turned on by learning. And uh, the good news is that that has allowed me to explore a lot of different areas in life. Uh, the thing that I have to work with is that once I've kind of learned to feel learning rate slows down, I sometimes lose interest or lose curiosity, but you need that follow through in a lot of cases. So then it, at that more mature stage, it's a matter of how do you balance the, the fun of learning and the discipline of getting things done. Can you expand on when your learning rate is falling down? Do you completely become disinterested in it? No, I think you just have to work harder to search for things to learn. So it is, it's just like going through levels, you know, layers of an onion there, you know, when you enter a new field for the first time, it's obvious that you don't know anything. Like, for example, I was in academic science for many years and then I jumped into the business world. And so I didn't know, I'd never even balanced my checkbook. If I had, when I was a grad student or a postdoc, if I had, you know, $5 to buy a burrito, I was happy. And that was about all I knew about money. So, you know, now I, then I joined this uh, prestigious consulting firm in New York and, you know, I didn't even own a suit when I, uh, first did an interview there. And I, um, I remember, uh, going for the interview. I'd just been stunned by how everybody was dressed. You know, when you grow up in a university, people are in jeans and sneakers and t-shirts your whole life. It's sort of, it, it's kind of shocking. But yeah, the learning rate is very high in the beginning because you don't know anything. And then as you start to figure out how things work and you learn the language and you learn what you need to do and what good end products look like, you just have to go deeper and say, well, what do I not know now? What am I not good at now? And I can really learn. And there are almost always things you can learn. You just have to think harder about what you don't know and what you can be better at. When did you first discover that you had this exploratory and inquisitive gene? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a great nature versus nurture question. I don't know if it's a gene or it was nurtured, um, but I think I always uh, grew up like that. I think I, I, I did a lot of sports uh, when I was young as well as science. And so uh, I played tennis in the juniors. Um, when I was young and you're in tennis, you're always trying to improve your stroke and your game. So you're always looking for where you can improve because that gives you an edge. And since it's a one-on-one -on -one sport, it's not a team sport. Um, it's very immediately visible if you are improving and getting better or not. And so I think both through sport, uh, I also did martial arts where it's also similar. You can see and feel if you're getting better or not and get immediate feedback, both through sports and through science and mathematics. Um, I kind of developed this love of feeling yourself get better at some skill. 
Yeah, it's, it's almost a high. And I'm so interested in people who have done one-on-one team sports and been successful. I came from a team sports background. So the one-on-one fascination with me is, is just so enthralling because I think about the narrative in the competitive mind. And I, I want to know what the narrative was like in your head when you were training and becoming better in tennis. <laughs> you know, there there is a funny thing that... Um... I remember there was a, when I was in, I played in the 12s and the 14s, maybe even in the 16s, I can't remember anymore. But um, I remember when I was playing in the 12s, there was a kid I was playing with uh, who just had these beautiful ground strokes named Dave DeLucia. And whenever I would find myself kind of not hitting very well or getting kind of sloppy, I would just have it like a video image of Dave DeLucia in my head said, oh, how, how would he hit? And then all of a sudden my body would get better and it would just be sort of like this automatic system of like, you just visualize, you know, some very good player and somehow your body and your muscles and your brain figure it out without any kind of conscious manipulation in, inside your own head. So there's something about just thinking about people who who are better at something than that you who are the place you want to go or at the level you want to go to in whatever sport or skill you're trying to do and just thinking about what are they doing don't even have to break it down just imagining them doing it and somehow subconsciously you start to get better oh we have to expand upon this video imagination I was recently talking with Nick Kakonis, who who owns the Linea Group and is a very successful entrepreneur. And he was talking about when he develops new ideas, they actually play out like a movie in his head. So have these sports images translated for you from a business perspective? Yeah, I think uh, there's so much. There's a great line. I wish I had it with me. But uh, did you ever read the Andre Agassi's biography? Yes, I was, uh, I was just telling someone about this yesterday. That is a great book if no one's read it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite sports biographies. It's beautifully written. And part of what makes it great is that it's not only about him, but it's a it's a love it's an incredible love story and an incredible story of inner conflict of how he is battling his demons constantly. Demons that you know, I grew up watching the Pete Sampras Andre Agassi uh, rivalry. It may be a generation older than than, than, than you know, like millennials today. But it was a, it was an amazing sports rivalry, and you never heard about this stuff underneath the surface. So it was kind of fascinating to hear. But what was so interesting was the scene there, and a great line where he talks about you know he's in this as it turns out, not a lot of people knew it. He had this uh, back pain, which made just even getting out of bed very painful. Uh, not, not to mention playing a full, uh, you know, five set tennis match. And he talked about, there's one scene there where he talks about his mental preparation before, uh, a big game where he goes in the shower and then he just visualizes these great wins that he's had, not necessarily the wins that people remember, but the wins where he really pulled through against a tough opponent and it may not have been in the finals. And he just visualizes and he keeps telling himself, you know, people say you can't do it, but you've got it. You can do it. And there's a great line where he says, and I, you know, I don't remember the numbers, you know, I've won, you know, X number of match. I've played X number of matches. I've won X number of tournaments. I've won X number of games and 80% of them were won in that shower before the game. 
I don't remember the exact numbers, but the point is that the mental preparation is so important uh, uh, when you're doing any kind of solo activity, especially whether it's tennis or martial arts or writing or uh, even if you're a manager, if you're a manager or a leader, you're up on a stage trying to inspire and motivate your people. Or if you're running a board meeting or if you're running a management meeting, everybody's watching you. And so absolutely the mental preparation you do just before you go into those meetings or just before you go on stage or just before you get out on the field plays an enormous role. And I find that if I just walk into a meeting or just walk on stage without a, a strong routine of preparing myself to be there, I do much less well. Well, we're going to get more into your skill development. And actually, I'm really interested how you prepare to get on stage. But I want to go back a little bit more. The son of two astrophysicists and a biotech entrepreneur. What was the conversation like at the dinner table for you guys? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, both my mother and father were, were astronomers. So there was some fair amount of science talk. But you know, it's less, it's, it's less than you might think because, you know, you know, you're trying to watch TV at the time, or you're talking about what's going on or like dinner or pizza, you know, so it's, it's pretty regular stuff. Only occasionally would we kind of dive deep into science. But one thing that did stay with me is the value system. So if you are with, uh, in a science environment, there are kind of two values that that are that get kind of baked into your genes and your approach to life. And one is that the search for truth is important. And that's different than if you grow up in, let's say, a pure business family or a family where material things are important, where the search for money comes an important value. And so we, me, my brother, and my sister, and I all grew up with the search for truth as an important and kind of noble goal. And that was just baked... Um, uh, childhood and how we grew up. And the second is to keep asking questions where uh, that that's how you make big breakthroughs in science. You keep asking questions and people tell you something and then you question, is that really true? What's the evidence for that? And so that creates these two philosophies or guiding principles as you go through life, that the search for truth is important. You should just keep asking questions. And that helps you in many different contexts. It helps you not only if you are in academics, but in the business world, you know, when somebody tells you this is the way it is, or this could never happen, or this is what the market is like, or that'll never work out in the market. You say, really? Can we ask some questions about it? Is that really true? I think uh, there was a great quote by, I think, Richard Feynman, where he said, science at its core is the belief, and I'll, I'm sure I'll mangle the exact quote, but it's something like science at its core is, in, is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And that means you don't take everything at face value, even if it's coming from a quote unquote expert. And that turns out to be a very useful and important principle for making progress in the business world, because the real big breakthroughs are often the ones that people say will never work. They sound crazy. They're the loon shots. I'm just so intrigued what you thought you'd be when you were a kid. 
Oh, I wanted to be a spy. Did I love really? the James Bond. Yeah, I love the James <laughs> Bond books. And, you know, uh, what was it? What was the book of the, like the Iger Sanction? I forgot. I remember reading those books and those were really fun. Um, the Day of the Jackal, I remember reading that and that was a great book. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> and then, then I grew up a little bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think I always assumed I would be a scientist just because I was doing that and I enjoyed it and it was fun and I was moving very quickly in that and it, it didn't seem to be very hard for me. And I, don't know, I just enjoyed figuring things out and figuring out the truth underlying things that you see that was just satisfying and fun. It's like doing puzzles, but puzzles in the real world. Yeah, that inquisitive nature clearly has been a theme thus far in our conversation. And, and this could be absolutely nothing. I'm just interested why you ended up attending Harvard for your BA. Uh, I wish there was a great reason. And I, you know, I, I, I am a believer that the, uh, the, the, this school brand stuff is a massively overrated thing in our society. Just having been with lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds that, you know, ultimate success and happiness in life tends to be driven much more by, uh, character and work ethic and how you treat other people and your values rather than where you went to school. So Harvard was just a somewhat random. I applied early, got in early, and then I just, I think, didn't feel like filling out other applications. So that was that. <laughs> Simple enough. I mean, having plenty of time to, to look back on your time there. And then I know you also attended Stanford. Is, is there anything that you walked away from saying, without a doubt, that had a major influence on this section of my life? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, hmm. I'm not sure any of the courses I took at Harvard, uh, I mean, they were interesting courses. Like everybody takes some interest, you know, you have more interesting courses in college and less interesting courses and some kind of stay with you a little bit longer. I, <laughs> I'm hard pressed to think of a particular course that made a huge difference. I think in both places, I learned much more from my from the people around me, from students. And so the best thing I, I got from either place was the relationships, uh, that lasted a long time and have been meaningful and valuable and, uh, have helped me over the course of my life. And that, that wasn't particular to either of those two schools. I think you get, you know, my brother went to Oberlin and got a phenomenal education and developed great friendships there. So, I don't think there was anything special about those two schools. Stanford is a, you know, happens to have a beautiful campus and great weather. Um, I happen to, you know, have terrific uh, graduate school experience there and, and excellent uh, professors I interact with. But again, I think you can get that in a lot of um, schools. And I, I really do think it's more about your character and your commitment, your curiosity. How, how much do you nurture your own innate curiosity and love of learning. And if you treat people well and nurture your own love of learning, you can go very far. I'm wondering how much is just raw computing power for you and how much was work ethic? I mean, BA summa cum laude from Harvard, PhD in physics from Stanford. What were your study habits like? Were you someone who could just show up, ace the test, or did you have methodical systems for preparing? No, I worked really hard. So, uh, the, 
you know, I think there's people like to tell these stories of folks who would just show up and then toss out some brilliant um, answer to a test or, or solve some difficult problem. But it, certainly in my case, uh, you know, not that I ever came up with, you know, brilliant answers to things, but the people that I know who did very well, um, they all were very hard workers like me. I just worked very hard, but in part because I enjoyed it, not because I felt any pressure that I needed to do X, Y, or Z. I think I was, the point was less about focusing on the prize of whatever that prize is, of getting some grade or something, which didn't matter very much, but more about the inward feeling of your skill is improving and, and watching yourself get better at something, seeing yourself really stuck. Someone throws a difficult problem at you and you're like, how the heck could you ever possibly answer this? And then you're just flopping around. But you know that if you flop around in that morass and that's when you pull, eventually you sort of figure it out and then you see a path to the end. And that whole process of going from flopping around and almost panic upon first being presented with a difficult problem to sort of getting your bearings, seeing the light, and then swimming towards the answer and then getting it, that whole process in and of itself is very enjoyable. And I think the people who have done very well you know, in those kind of domains are the people who find that process enjoyable. And it's less about the outcome of you get a grade or not. It's more about going from flopping around to knowing the way, very satisfying. Do you think that skill development process was learned more through, call it sports with tennis, and I know you mentioned martial arts, or was it more from the academic side? Uh, this is a good question. I think, you know, in, in these sort of solo sports like tennis or uh, martial arts, um, you're very focused on practicing and improving your skill. Like in martial arts, you practice, you know, in, in, in Japanese karate, for example, you practice what are called kata, which is over and over and over again. You do these series of moves and your sensei, your teacher will look at your moves and make very fine adjustments. And you just keep doing that sometimes for years. You repeat the same sequence of moves and, you know, someone much more senior than you who has been doing it much longer than you looks at your moves and makes small adjustments. And in the process of doing that, you learn incremental improvements and seeing yourself get better at something. And you learn kind of the, the pleasure of doing that. There's no prize at the end of, you know, one week or two weeks or three weeks. There's just a cumulative goal. And that's that's true in tennis. That's true in swimming. It's true in, you know, let's say gymnastics. You're constantly trying to improve yourself. And that applies, or, or music, of course. I don't play much music. I know, and I have a lot of friends who do, but it's very similar. You're constantly trying to improve, make small adjustments that improve things in small ways. And only cumulatively over years does it really start to sound some really good. But the people who do really well are the ones who really love that day after day kind of hard work, practice, and cumulative incremental improvements. You mentioned the incremental improvements. 
I'm really intrigued about what your mindset is actually like when you're about to begin something you have no experience in. Is is there a framework that you've structured that under? Um, that's another good question. I think uh, I try to break things down into little rules that are helpful. Let's say, I, I, you know, as an example, I went from running a company, which I did for 13 years, to writing, where I sort of eased into it. First, I just for fun as a little, you know, mental digression, wrote up this essay of sort of stuff that I'd been talking about for fun for a couple of years. And then people came back and said, well, that's really a, should be a book. And I was like, well, that sounds like a very big project. Do I really want to do that? And then I, you know, kind of gradually found my way in. But once I started down that path, I'd never written a book before. Uh, I did. I started to try to think about what are some examples of books that are successful that I admire um, and what do they seem to have in common? So I, when I approach something new, it's, it's definitely along the lines of what are some examples of successes? What do they seem to have in common? And then I try to break it out. Um, and what I've always found is that when I break out what they seem to have in common, those successes, um, my view of that changes enormously, especially in the early days. So what I thought about three years ago or four years ago when I was first starting this project is totally different than what I thought two years ago is different than what I thought a year ago. I, I think it's different than what I think today. But just the process of trying to break out, here's the four or five or six things that the ones who are successful seem to have in common, and here's the four or five or six things that the ones that are less successful seem to have in common. Just the process of trying to break that out, even if you're not right, just thinking about that helps you. You mentioned how it's changed over the years. Can you give us specific examples of, of how your views changed on that? You know, I had uh, one approach to, for example, how do I get better as a writer? And I said, well, let's find some books that are, you know, similar to maybe what I'm trying to do and uh, what made them successful. And then I realized that uh, over a year or two, I realized, well, that's not really, they're not really what I'm trying to do because what I was, you know, I'm mixing physics, I'm combining three things that haven't really been combined very much before physics, business, and history, and applying lessons from each of those worlds to the, to the other worlds in a way that, uh, is all tied together by this one underlying idea. So I'm, you know, on the one hand, trying to tell good stories that are entertaining and gripping for readers. On the other hand, trying to communicate a big idea, a certain underlying science idea that is a new idea that hasn't really been applied um, before that kind of the science of why things suddenly change, applying that to the behavior of teams and companies, uh, and then trying to drill that, uh, uh, tie all those things together with some deep dives into history, revealing things that about history, things that I'd always thought were true. And then the more I went and learned about them, they turned out not to be true and were just so surprising. So there's the science, there's the stories, and there's the histories. And tying them all together was a big challenge. And so there didn't, I actually didn't find anything that did something similar. So 
eventually I realized if I want to learn to write better, I need to find uh, some examples of writing that resonate enormously with me rather than read books about authors and writing. Just find a couple of writers that resonate enormously and then study what are they doing with sentences and just forget what everybody else says and study what does it seem to be that these guys are doing uh, and how they're putting words together and sentences together and stringing them into paragraph. What are they doing that seems like magic but is working so well? What is the, what are there any principles behind that magic? And so that was one thing that changed rather than try to read other people's lessons and ideas, just try to figure it out for myself. And that was enormously valuable. It seems to tie back to that beginner's mindset. And I'm thinking about your domain expertise in, in the three fields you mentioned there, physics, business, and then history. And, and how important do you think it is having a broad view of knowledge in three different fields? Do you think about that at all? Well, I wasn't trained in history at all, but it, you know, but you've done enough been, research now to probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So once you're an academic, you, you're very comfortable and familiar with reading the academic literature and then having uh, a feel for academic debates. And so I developed a certain principle of uh, how do you read about history and when do you know that you've read enough? So that that was helpful there. But yeah, for in physics and in science, I had um, obviously done, you know, having done a PhD and a postdoc and actually earned a faculty position, I had an, and written original research papers. I had enough feel of that feel. In business, having been a CEO for 13 years, um, and a, it was a public company the last six or seven or so years, I had a pretty good sense, I think, of of managing at least, you know, a business of that size. And history was kind of new, but you could apply some of the similar concepts. So putting to them together was a lot of fun and kind of a big, exciting, creative challenge because it was quite tricky. How do you tell stories of Einstein and Kepler and James Bond and Star Wars and uh, the rise and fall of Pan Am and the fate of empires? How do you structure that? How do you, how do you tell those stories? They're all tied together by this one idea, but how do you create a narrative thread that makes the reader kind of never want to put the book down, that it's always, you're going forward, forward, forward. So that was a really fun, exciting, creative uh, challenge. And yeah, there was an enormous, um, you asked about how does having those three domains help? I think it just allows you to say something very new. And that's kind of what's been really nice about the response just in the last even two weeks of from so many different um, domains from getting people who are really moved or excited. Um, I just got an email from a guy who runs a major film studio, like just out of the blue. Um, I have, you know, friends of mine in the medical world, friends of mine who, you know, are creative artists and haven't run a business ever or thought about science ever, but are really enjoying the stories. And I was like, wow, this is really fun. And it's fun for me to develop these new connections too. Oh, I could imagine. So what point during your entire journey did you realize, you know what, I, I think I'm going to write a book someday? Um, many years, maybe 10 years ago or maybe longer, I got invited to this one conference and uh, uh, it was sort of a fun idea fest 
um, side conference of people in a certain business. And uh, they asked a bunch of people say, could you each give a talk, but not on the subject of your work? And, you know, when you're running a company, you're used to like going out and saying, here's what I'm doing. And, you know, seeking money from investors or partnerships or hiring. So you're always talking about your business. Um, and if you're an academic, you're, you know, going on this lecture circuit talking about your work. So this was sort of interesting challenge. Can you talk about something that's completely unrelated to your work? And so I ended up at the time, you know, I was running a biotech company. We we're working on developing cancer drugs. So I had to think of something totally different. And it always appealed to me to think about the, you know, could I think about tease out any interesting ideas about the arc of human thought. So I decided to give a fun talk, 3,000 years of physics in 45 minutes. What were the eight biggest moments in how human beings thought about the nature of the world around them? And do it very quickly because it was a popular audience. And so that turned out to be just, I was so surprised by how much fun that was because it, you may know this, but you may experience this yourself, but when you're running a business, you have blinders on for your business. You're dealing with people stuff, financial stuff, strategic questions, tactical questions. I didn't have a lot of time for like leisure reading or reading things outside my field. And so this forced me, I took a 10 day break or something to just do the research and, and I just found it so surprisingly fun. And then afterwards, I ended up giving that talk a bunch of times and afterwards people were like, oh, that's, you should just make that into a book. There are eight moments, so that's eight chapters. Go ahead and do it. I was like, well, you know what? That sounds like fun. Shouldn't be that hard. I've divided it into eight things. Each one's a chapter. And so that entered my mind back then. And then, you know, I was too busy for many years um, until finally, maybe four or five years ago, I decided, all right, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So let's Let's get cracking. Well, I'm, I'm glad you finally did get cracking. I'm interested. We're, we're going to get more into, into your work career, but you mentioned having the blinders on, being the leader of a company, and you ended up taking a 10-day break. What was the the culminating point where you were like, I need to take this break, and how vital do you think that was for you? Um, I'm one of those guys, and I think they're probably a lot like me, where I never took a break. I just, I enjoyed work. I enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed the people aspects of it, developing great people and helping them realize their potential. We had a big mission of, of uh, developing new kinds of cancer drugs that would make a difference in thousands or tens of thousands of lives. So I, I enjoyed it and I worked very hard and I, I really never took a break, but I had committed to give this weird talk. And so <laughs> I couldn't just get up on stage and talk with no background about 3000 years of history. So I had to take, I was kind of forced to take a 10 day break. You know, the talk was around, uh, the end of the year, like December 31st or something, you know, kind of one of these idea festivals that's held over new years. And, um, so it was not hard cause nobody else was working, you know, around Christmas time. So it was not hard to take a break right around that period of the year. And then I was just so surprised and I shouldn't have been, but I was so surprised at how great I felt not thinking about work for a block of time, like 10 days or two weeks. And I was like, that's a great idea and feeling to just completely go into a different world for, you know, let's say a two week period. Because when I came back to work, I was refreshed, re-energized, had new ways of thinking about problems. So 
you know, people say that a lot. Oh, you should really take a break and do, you know, not work for a while. But I always ignored that advice. So what did this two weeks actually look like? What were you doing during this time? I was reading. I was, you know, I had a straightforward end product goal, which is, you know, a one hour talk about 3000 years of history. What are those eight biggest ideas? So I just had a massive stack of books and it was just thinking, it was like puzzle solving. So if you imagine 3000 years of history, how break it into eight critical moments? What are those eight moments? Since I was a physicist and a scientist and it was in a field that I somewhat knew, um, I mean, I knew modern physics, but I didn't know the history of it very well. So I knew enough to get started, but I really, you know, like a lot of practicing people in their, in whatever field, whether it's physics or biology or chemistry or even business, you know what you need for today. And you know, maybe very recent history, what happened last year with this company or that company or this thing in your field but you don't know what happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago or the context of how you got there. And it was such an enriching experience to learn, see the arc of history, because then you get a sense of, oh, there are all these patterns in history and they keep repeating. And people who haven't gone back and looked at those patterns are missing something very important because once you understand those patterns, you can see, whoa, well, here we are and we're in the middle of this It'll probably play out like the 15 other times that this happened in history. This is right up my alley. I've been studying a lot of history recently. If you're going back to that two-week period, you're staring at that pile of books and you can only pull one of them out of it. What book are you going to pick up? Good God. Um, I have to look around my library here and see. Let's see. what There were so many... um, I would have to I would have to think a little bit more about that answer. There were so many uh, books that I kind of speed read through. Uh, that's kind of one of the secrets of having really good ideas is is to is speed. You want to read very quickly until something catches your eye. Um, but I, I would have to think some more about if I had to pick out one good history book. I, I could tell you right now, there's a, an author named John Gribben who writes very nice histories of science and history of physics that I enjoyed um, enjoyed a lot. Uh, and I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. You mentioned the idea generation and, and the process of that and the speed you have to read with. How else do you generate new ideas? I think for me, the key has been there's four things. It's isolation, speed, attention, and courage. And so here's what I mean by that. By isolation, you know, I have like an eight by eight little cave, which I'm sitting in right now. Um, And you kind of close the blinds and just disappear and kind of cut off from the world. And actually in writing this book, I kind of disappeared and went into that cave for almost two years. Um, You need isolation to have really interesting ideas because if you're always talking to people who are thinking the way a lot of people are thinking, it'll be hard for you. You won't even realize how much you're by osmosis being drawn into a conventional way of thinking. And if you want to do something really different and radical, you want some isolation just to develop these kind of wacky ideas on your own and then come back to test them out on people. Um, So you want isolation. You want speed because if you just 
focus on reading word by word, super carefully one particular author, you'll get stuck in that one particular view. And what you really want to do is read broadly quickly until something grabs you. And that's the, the third thing, which is attention. You want to pay very close attention. Here's what I mean. Let's say there's a giant forest of stuff, of material. What you want to do is kind of run around the edge of that forest quickly, as fast as you can, kind of looking at things, but keep your eye out for maybe that little red sparrow and look carefully until you see it peeking from behind a branch. And that little red sparrow is the really creative, interesting thing that doesn't fit, that's different. And you want to then pay attention until you find that. And then when it picks up and starts to fly away, you want to follow that. Because that little red sparrow, that tiny little thing that says, that seems kind of different and doesn't quite fit and makes you say, wait, what? What happened here? That's that's the gold. And you want to follow that. And that that will take you to lots of other red sparrows and beautiful animals in a beautiful new world. So you want to run around very quickly circling this forest until you find, and you want to pay attention to look very carefully for that wait what moment or the that little red sparrow that just doesn't seem to fit and has indicates that there's something very cool there. So speed, attention, and then courage. The last one is you want to have the guts to follow these sort of crazy ideas, even if people say, you know, what are you doing? So for me, it was kind of a process of isolation, speed, attention, and courage. I love the Red Sparrow story. Do you think that's your superpower? Number three, the attention aspect of that and the ability to find the Red Sparrows in life? Uh, you know, probably different people have different views on this, but I'm kind of a fairly big believer that lots of these things can be nurtured. So, um, I think if people want to do this kind of thing, they can just focus on isolation, speed, attention, and courage, and they can get better at any of those four things if they set their minds to it. So I, I don't think there's some genetic predisposition. I think it's coaching yourself into doing well on each of those dimensions. When looking back at, at some of your idea generation and the best ideas you've ever come up with, do you have a handful that you think about when I, when I mention that? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, you know, there were so many wacky ideas that ended up in uh, this book, uh, you know, just, as, just in terms of a recent example. Um, Actually, it was very funny. I was with an author um, having uh, a couple of beers, a guy named Bob Sutton, who I'm doing a panel with in um, San Francisco in a, in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, he had said some very nice things about my books. And we were meeting with another author friend for some beers. And after you know one or two beers in, he turns to me and he goes, man, that book of yours. And I say, yeah, that was some wacky shit. <laughs> and I, I feel like when he told me that, and, and he's a well-known author, and he said, well, when he told me that, I feel like, wow, that, I think that might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me <laughs> about my, my writing. Man, that was some wacky shit. And I'm like, good. So yeah, so, you know, comparing Isaac Newton and Steve Jobs and, you know, how they dismissed the people who re really gave them their ideas was sort of fun. And then 
all the kind of weird stories and somehow how I, I have no idea how they ended up getting tied together because I was just sort of in a cave and in my own head going into some weird zone. But um, tying together all that wacky shit into something that's sort of a coherent whole. Uh, in retrospect, I don't know how I did it, but I'm sort of glad that it happened. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we're all glad that they uh, they ended up on on the paper. But I'm also interested throughout your own, not necessarily personal life, but even just your business life. How many ideas that have truly changed your trajectory have you come up with? You know, let's see. So I made a you know a couple big shifts over the course of my life. One was when I was in economic science, I, I shifted from one field of science to second field of science. It was a complete it, it may not sound like a big deal to people outside the world, but I went from thinking of myself as one kind of scientist, a part, what's called a particle physicist who studies the science of the very small, you know, what happens inside atoms or protons and neutrons, to a very different world, the science of the many, what happens, you know, in metals and materials under very strange conditions. And those are two completely different branches of science or of physics. They don't even speak the same language. So that that was one big shift. And I'm very glad I made that shift. That was changing from what I thought I would do for the rest of my life in a pretty big way. Um, and then at the end of, you know, when the learning curve, it kind of plateaued and I wanted to see what else was out there in the world. I made another shift. I said, let me see what's in the business world because all I've done in my whole life, I was maybe 30 years old at the time, 29. I've always been on a university and I realized that 9.99% of the population doesn't work at a university. So what are they doing? And how, and that seems to be how the world works. It's all these people who are not at a university are actually driving the economy and production and how goods get made. And I'm kind of curious about how that works. And so I got a job with a consulting firm that uh, is sort of like a halfway house between academics and business. You solve problems for businesses. And uh, so you're solving some problems like the academic world, but they're in the business arena rather than the pure science arena. So that was a big shift. And in each of those shifts, it was really curiosity. It was really, I don't understand this. And so what can I do to try to understand this world better? Because that'll be fun. And so I did that in consulting. And then after I got a sense of it, I wanted to... I think a big idea for me or a big reason to shift is uh, I wanted to be involved in something. I realized it was very satisfying to me to be involved in something that could make a difference for others rather than just improve your own resume or um, create your own credit for having discovered X, Y, or Z or having built X, Y, or Z something where you create a product that really helps people in need. In particular, helps people spend more time on earth with their loved ones. Uh, at some point I lost my father uh, with whom I had a very close relationship. And so that just became a very meaningful thing for me. So getting involved in building a biotech company that created new drugs uh, where the goal was to get people to have more time on earth with their loved ones was a very fulfilling and meaningful goal. And so that was another big shift for me to go from thinking about 
you know, what's inside my own head to thinking about how you can do something that helps others. With these big shifts, is it something that ruminates and takes a little time? Or is it in one night you realize that you're going to make that big shift? Um, that's a good question. I, I think it's, it's a, it's a graduate. I think people have different rates of accepting internal change. One thing I've noticed, I'm pretty fast. As soon as I decide something is better, I just make a sharp turn. I never look back, but I have gotten the feedback from people close to me who sometimes have to go along with that turn, (laughs) but that, that kind of turn is a little too sharp for them. Uh, so you know, they can leave them slamming against the door, like, what happened? What was that? Uh, so I am pretty fat. As soon as I kind of logically conclude, oh, this is a better path, whoosh, I'll make a you know a sharp left turn or a sharp right turn. Uh, but I think I, I am a little unusual in that. Uh, and other people are less comfortable with change. That being said, when I make a sharp left turn, it's usually not instantaneous. It's, it's often a matter of days or a few weeks. Uh, but at the end of that process, I never look back and I'm satisfied. I've thought about it and then I'm, I'm done. I don't, I, I don't generally revisit those kind of decisions. I'm laughing because you and I are way too similar in, in the rate of speed we're moving during some of those big decisions. And do you think that's just about so many different inputs you've been able to take in throughout the years that when you have a big decision, you're so calculated, your brain's processed a million different inputs, so it's much easier for you to make that decision? You know, one thing that you have to learn to be good at running a business is how to compartmentalize, meaning, you know, you're dealing with, you know, board members or investors here, and you have to go to that box, open that box, deal with them, and then you know, you have a meeting later with some employees who are having some employee issues. You have to close the first box, open the second box. And those boxes can't really overlap. You can't take interactions that have nothing to do, you know, board member or investor interactions or even personal life stuff and bring it into important meetings with individual employees who are having individual issues. You need to learn to compartmentalize if you want to be effective and you need to learn to work on in different modes and in different mindsets with different people. Different people are motivated by different things. You need to really compartmentalize. And internally, I think I've become good enough to understand, well, there are feelings and then there's logic and you need to, both are valid, but you just need to understand which are which. And so I have them, uh, I have a reasonably good sense of internally, well, I might have these feelings like, let's say, fear about trying something new or excitement about trying something new. Either one, those are feelings. And then there's the logic. And you just want to separate them. Those are different boxes. You don't want them to confuse each other. It doesn't mean that feelings are more valid or less valid than logic. It just means you want to be mindful I'm feeling this, I'm feeling scared of this new thing, or I'm feeling excited about this new thing. That's an important feeling. Let's mark that and note that. Now let's think about the logic of it. And if you don't make that decision, if you're not very good at compartmentalizing between emotions and logic, then they bleed into each other and they get very confused. Um, And I think you're less able to make good decisions. Along the lines of making good decisions, you mentioned something that when you make a decision, you don't regret it, but do you look back and study those decisions and how you came to make that decision? 
Oh, sure. That's that's incredibly important uh, process because uh, a very common thing to do is when something goes wrong to analyze what was it about that particular move or decision that was bad. Let, let's just take as an example, let's say you make some investment. It could be in anything. It could be a stock. It could be an asset. It could be buying a car. It could be buying a house. It could be, let's say you make some decision and it doesn't work out. You know, either the, the company you invested in does poorly or you bought some asset that you're unhappy with. And then you you can analyze individually. Let's say you bought, you made an investment in some company. What was it that went south? Well, you know, they didn't have as much money as we thought and, and it to their 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 product took was a lot more expensive and then they just ran out of money. So uh, you know, here's the problem. Um the balance sheet was too weak. Uh, I need to be, you know, more careful. You know that I shouldn't invest in companies where the balance sheet is really weak. That's, you know, an example of analyzing the outcome. So that turns out to be okay. That's, you know, a business that's often called doing a postmortem. You know, what happens after we launch a product or you make some decision? But a far more powerful idea is a system. What I call system mindset, which is not just looking at the outcome, but looking at the system. How, meaning, how did you arrive at the decision? So that's a one level up, which is let's go to that moment where you decided to make an investment in that company and write a check. What was the process you used to arrive at the decision to write a check? What were you thinking at the time? Did you have a checklist or did you not have a checklist? What was on your checklist? If you did have a checklist, uh, did you really follow through on your checklist or not follow through on your checklist when you're evaluating your decision? Should you have a checklist in the future? Those kind of things, which is what is your process behind making that decision? You have to go back in time, which is tricky because hindsight can trick you and you say, oh, I was thinking this or I was thinking that. You want to really kind of write down what you're thinking when you make a decision so that after it plays out, whether it's a month later or six months later or a year or two years later, you can go back and say, how did I make that decision and how should I be making decisions better? Where did my process break down or it didn't break down? Maybe I had a great process and it was a great decision at the time and I should keep doing it. It just, you know, it didn't play out, but that's okay. It was a, it was a what you call an intelligent risk. The odds were good that, you know, I drew a, you flipped the coin, it didn't go the right way, but it was still good odds and a right bet. You should do it again. Or there was something wrong with my process. And here's why the second level, the meta level, the system mindset level is more important because if you just make a decision to come back to investing company example, and your takeaway is, oh, I should just look at companies that have better balance sheets, that have more money in the bank then that might help you in three or four other investments in the future where you're now keep your eye on that balance sheet thing. On the other hand, if you look at your decision process and say, I didn't have a checklist or I set aside my checklist because I was feeling really bullish about something that day. So I said, screw my checklist. Now you have a lesson for there for improving your process, which is whenever I'm feeling really good, I need to double down on my checklist and make sure I don't write a check until I have some process 
where everything on my due diligence list or my investigate list, I have checked the box and I need to be especially mindful. Am I feeling really good? Am I feeling like I'm really smart? In which case, I need to double down how careful I am because that's the big trap. The advantage of that second way is that could help you in hundreds of decisions. Whereas the first process, just the standard outcome mindset post-mortem might help you in three or four similar examples that are very narrowly the same to that one you know, investment or product launch or whatever. Going back and improving your process that you, by which you make decisions can help you in hundreds or thousands of future decisions. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And the system thinking mindset, that mental model is something I've adapted largely because of success. But going back and studying that, it was they were flawed decisions that led to, to that success. And so I, I love how you uncovered that. I'm interested, was there a decision for you that went south that you think about that when going back and looking, there were too many decisions that you should have seen that, that could have told you this would have gone south? Oh, there are dozens or hundreds. And you know, if you ask any CEO or business leader uh, who's honest, they'll just tell you their, their life was far more full of mistakes than it was good decisions. And so, you know, absolutely, there are, um, you know, business decisions or hiring decisions or people decisions that uh, uh, were bad decisions. And, you know, it's a matter of uh, everyone makes some amount of good decisions and some amount of bad decisions. And I think the key to improving in life, improving in management, improving as a leader is taking the time to sit back and think honestly and get feedback, honest feedback, which is very difficult to get, especially in, uh, well, either in the business world or in personal life, what was the thinking behind those decisions? And were there any differences in how you approached making the decisions that were good decisions and the decisions that you made that were bad decisions? So, um, you know, for me, I, I, you know, if I think about some bad decisions, those tended to be the ones where I was impulsive and acted without getting or listening to the opinion of thoughtful people. And when I was uh, impulsive or sure that I was right, it's typically after I had a bunch of successes, a bunch of things that played out really great. And you're feeling like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I just had a bunch of things that played out really great. And then you have another idea or a decision and you're like, okay, well, you know, I know what I'm doing. And even if these guys are telling me it's a dumb idea, it's not worth, you know, let's just go ahead and do it and move quickly. Um, and that's kind of a common theme of bad decisions. Probably not just me, probably a lot of people, but certainly in my own experience. And the, the important lesson is not if people tell you something is raise questions about something, it doesn't mean that they're right, but you should probe. And I think when I've done the worst is when I didn't bother probing, when people raised questions or objections and I didn't probe. I have a phrase there that I, I like to use just to, because I don't remember well unless there's a good mnemonic. So I think of it as LSC, listen to the suck with curiosity. So 
if people tell you this idea sucks or that thing sucks or your product sucks or your project sucks, you know, if you just politely acknowledge them, okay, I understand, you know, you know, we disagree with that. That's polite. Um, and get you moving forward. Um, but it won't really help you. What you really want to do is put on kind of a detective mindset, a Columbo or a Sherlock Holmes and say, Hmm, can you help me understand, set aside any feeling of like rejection or especially if it's something you've been a pet project, something that you've been pouring your heart and soul into. And they say, well, I, I don't think this is going to work or, um, I don't think this is particularly good or, you know, it, you have these feet coming back to these two boxes of feelings versus logic. You need to say, okay, that's a, you know, that makes me feel pretty bad that somebody, you know, I, I have this beautiful baby that I think is beautiful and they're telling me it's ugly. How do I feel about that? Not very good. What do I want to do about that? I kind of want to punch, punch the, punch the lights out of them is what I really want to do. So, okay. That's a feeling. That's okay. Feelings are valid. Feelings are there for a good reason. Now let's put that feeling in a box, understand, thank it. And now let's go to the curiosity, you know, say, help me understand, like, what is it specifically that you think might not work? That becomes very important to listen to suck with curiosity because that can tease out the tiny little things that they know that you think, you know, but don't really like they're aware of some other products in the market or they're aware of some flaws that they've seen that you've overlooked, or they're aware of what some people are saying that you actually haven't heard. And if you just go with the feelings of wanting to punch the crap out of them and don't go with, you know, managing those feelings and go with the, you know, listening with curiosity, you will miss those tiny little nuggets, which are actually the nuggets, the little pieces of gold that you need to improve. So I think when I've, uh, been at my worst is when I haven't followed that LSC rule, listen to the suck with curiosity. Thinking about LSC, what was it like when you were starting the biotech company? Was it more positive for you or was it more <laughs> negative? <laughs> there was a lot of suck, believe me. <laughs> so, so then what was so underlying for you to make you continue to push forward on this? Well, it was the excitement of the mission. You know, the excitement of have of being involved with something that could affect lives and you know help people who are suffering and families of people who are suffering that was kind of an overriding excitement and energy and even if there were moments that sucked you know the 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 group of people that assembled around it were phenomenal people and it was tons of fun to work with them because they were also excited about that same big idea so certainly the momentum and the energy on the excitement of the mission kept us going through whatever bumps in the road we encountered early on. If you were gonna start a new company tomorrow, you have no idea what the company it is or what field it's in, and you can only bring on one person to be your co-founder, who's that gonna be? Oh my goodness, what a question. Um, well, I think it depends on the field. I mean, in biotech, I picked somebody at biotech. Um, wow. I. I it's hard for me to answer that um, because it depends so much on the field. There are people that I love, but you don't want to have a co-founder or partner just because it's somebody that you like 
as the only reason. It's good to have that as one reason, but you want someone who compliments you in their skills. So I, it's hard for me to answer in a general way because, sorry about that, big. No, but I, it just depends I, so much on the It's a field. question I always want to ask, and I'm always assuming this is how it's going to be answered. So can we almost unpeel the onion? And you mentioned you want complementary skills to yourself. So what type of skills would you be looking for in someone else? Um, well, very often there's the domain. So when I first started my company, a biotech company, I was a young guy who uh, had certain very good analytical skills because I came back from an analytical background and I had worked a lot on Wall Street and on trading floors and with investors. And so I had learned to speak well, you know, the language that's commonly used in the investing world. Uh, and I had some basic science knowledge, but I didn't have a lot of biotech industry knowledge. So I partnered with someone who was, you know, a, a generation older than me, who came entirely from the academic uh, biomedical world. And we complemented each other great because he had, the things that we brought to the table were exactly the opposite and you needed both. So that was an example of an excellent uh, fit. I'm in a different stage of life now. That was probably about 20 years ago. Um, so depending on what new venture I did, um, it would depend on how much skill I had. If I went into a field that I didn't know much about, then I'd want someone who had a ton of domain expertise in that field. And let's say I'm bringing very different aspects. Let's say I went into the investing world. I mean, some people have approached me about that. I don't know if I will or I won't do that. Then uh, I haven't spent time as a professional investor. I have spent time evaluating ideas and I have spent time managing a business and bringing people together, but I haven't spent time as a professional investor. So if I ended up going down that path, then I would absolutely want to partner with a person or a group who have the, all of those professional investing skill sets that I don't have. No, that makes perfect sense. And I, I appreciate you adding some clarity to, to the question I asked there. And you guys brought it to IPO in 2007. What is that like? How, how many added pressures come with taking a company for an IPO? You know, I probably have a contrarian view on this. I actually much prefer being a public company than a private company. I know people often seem to think the other or say the other, but in a public company, what you can say and can't, there are very clear boundaries of what you can say and what you can't say to people who are evaluating your company because you have SEC guidelines and everything that you can communicate that's material is kind of written down and reviewed internally by a team and by lawyers and then codified. And then if somebody asks you some questions that are outside that box, you really can't talk about it because you can't discuss material, non-public information. Whereas when you're a private company and you're trying to raise money, every investor and their brother can say, well, can you show me this confidential document and that confidential document and this other one? And then you just have to keep feeding them all this proprietary stuff that you and your team have been sweating blood over. And then they, you know, they have investments in 10 or 20 or 50 other companies and you don't know what they do with that information. So that's very uncomfortable for I have a company and a private team that's working on some proprietary stuff. So I actually like, you know, being a public company, you don't have that issue, which is nice. The other advantage of being a public company is that all the facts are on the table. This is what it is. You know, you have a stock price, like it or not, it is what it is. Whereas a private company, you just have these endless musings on 
what is it worth? Is it worth this? Is it not worth? When are you going public? You know, employees can keep wondering about the value of what they have. And it's just in some ways a distraction. The advantage of going public is it's just over. You don't have to debate with anybody the value of what they have or the shares can be this someday or the shares can be that and just have those kind of distracting, pointless discussions. It is what it is. This is what you have. And let's move on and focus on business. So that's another thing I like better about public company. And the third thing is that everybody is aligned. So there is a measure of value. It's out there. You could like it or not, but it is what it is. Whereas as a private company, you have a small group of investors in your board of directors, and they may have very different agendas. You know, one investor group may want to raise a new fund. So they want a liquidity event. They want to like sell the company or take it public much faster. Another investor group is running low on cash. So whatever they do, they just don't want to write another check for cash. Third investor group, you know, has some other. And so then you're dealing with rather than stuff that matters for the company and building value, you're dealing with individual agendas of, you know, a small number of individual investors. And so that's can be distracting as well. So for all those reasons, I actually liked uh, being a public company better than being a private company. Uh, I'm sure there are, you know, if you have different contexts, you know, being private is better. But um, in, in the biotech, you know, for most biotechs, uh, you have the kind of situation of small group of investors that might have individual agendas they're dealing with versus once you're public, those agendas all go away. Um, in terms of going public, it wasn't that hard. I mean, you have so many companies do it. It's such a standard process that, you know, you just go into a funnel. You know, you have bankers who have done it many times before. You have lawyers who have done it many times before, and they just walk you through the process. So it's not, um, I think it's exciting the first time, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not that hard. When you're talking about this, you, you mentioned the first time, and I'm just thinking about your skill acquisition and domain expertise, and you've accomplished just an incredible amount so far. What else is in the back of your mind that, that you hope to accomplish someday? <laughs> um, you know, I've been in a cave for almost three years, and I'm just like emerging from the cave <laughs> and seeing light. So right now, I think I'm just blinking and trying to absorb. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not really sure. There are a lot of different options and I'm thinking through, I have some fun ideas of uh, kind of more technical science or academic stuff that are spillovers from some of the research that I did for this book. There's a lot of stuff that I did in the research that didn't make it into the book. Um, and then there are like fun opportunities that seem to be presented all the time. So we'll see. Right now I'm just like, emerging from the cave and seeing that there's a real world out there and talking to people for the first time in a long time. So we'll see how that goes. That's absolutely fair. When you're assessing these potential ideas, are you writing them down in notebooks? Do you run it through your head? What does that look like? Oh, I, I store all my ideas and notes in Evernote. And so I have different folder structures. And so, yeah, I have um, one uh, notebook for just new ideas, new projects. And then I Whenever I get in, I don't have a great memory. So whenever I have a idea or a thought that I may want to follow up on, I just find the right notebook or create the right notebook and then write it down there. And then it's, it's there for whenever I want to look at it. 
Have you ever posted a photo of one of the pages from one of these notebooks? If I posted a photo from, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> I, 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 just pure fascination. I would love to see one just to see how, how your ideas come out on the paper. They, they were often kind of incoherent later. You know, you're really excited about the moment and it's full of like all these like interesting things that make complete sense at the moment. And then you look back a month later, you're like, I thinking, I have no idea. I can't even read this. <laughs> well, that makes me feel better looking back at my notebooks. I'm, I'm glad you're doing a similar thing there. And you mentioned being in the cave for a number of years and we've used this term loon shots. That's loon shots with an L. So your new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Can you unpack what a loon shot is? Sure. The truly big ideas, the, one that changed the, the ones that change the course of science, of business, or history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets or red carpets dazzling everyone with their brilliance. They're usually neglected or dismissed for years or even decades, and their champions are written off as nuts or crazy. And uh, since there wasn't any other good word to describe that kind of concept, I made one up, balloon shots. So is it now in the dictionary with your name next to it? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the, the book just came out like a week ago, so I have no idea. But um, I do remember when I first started, uh, so, you know, quite a few publishers and editors were like, well, you know, we really like the, the concept sounds good. We like the material, but that, you know, not not sure about that title because, you know, it, you know, imagine a book salesperson, you know, is, is, is talking to a bookseller. This is a very inside publishing industry baseball game, which I later found out is, you know, it's a very small world. And they said, well, you know, imagine our salespeople are talking to a bookstore owner and they say, you know, oh, the name of the book is Loon Shots. And the guy goes, oh, Moon Shots, like with an M? He goes, no, Loon Shots with an L. And he said, you don't want to have that five second discussion. I'm like, really? Uh, huh. That's okay. Because, and then I ran it by a bunch of other, you know, I ran it by a bunch of other people and they just loved the name and they got instantly, you know, crazy ideas. And, you know, the book is, uh, hopeful and optimistic and inspiring about what you can do to nurture these crazy ideas and these people that you think, you know, the idea just arrived to them fully formed and they were these instant geniuses. No, they were dismissed and written off as nuts for 10, 20 years sometimes before people recognized. And that's, in many ways, that's a uplifting and inspiring and hopeful message. And, and they, they get that with uh, the word of the title. At the time, I just didn't have a good way to express, I, I kept trying to find some other word and I couldn't. So I just picked that one. Uh, but it seems to be resonating. We'll see in, you know, a few months or a few years. No, I actually, I, I do enjoy the title and I really did enjoy the book. You mentioned the different emotions you feel. And then earlier I mentioned how much I love history and, and this is almost like a history book as well. So it's a really entertaining read. One, you walk away from having so many new ideas and learning so much. So I really did appreciate your work here. Great. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, no, of course. And you seem to be someone who has a lot of counterintuitive takes on things. Is, is there something right now that you really have a counterintuitive take that not everyone believes? Um, <laughs> there are probably so many. Uh, you know, you mentioned the history. It's just that was what was so uh, fun for me and probably why I went and spent, you know, two or three times longer than you know, it was necessary just for the basic concepts in the book is that I find so many of these histories so surprising and so counterintuitive from, for example, 
why does the world speak English? How did English become the dominant language of business in the world? Why did you know England and Western European nations, you know, triumph over over others? And there's this, you know, there's a lot of work on this whole, um, you know, the culture and you know, Protestant was the Protestant work ethic, or you know, the geography was um, somehow especially conducive and so on. But the more you peel back the onions on that, well, for about a thousand years, China, Islam, and India were the absolute dominant empires in wealth. They were far more advanced in in early examples of science and technology, whether, you know, paper and printing was invented a thousand years in China, a thousand years before it ever appeared in Europe, university, you know, kind of education system organizations developed hundreds of years earlier in China than it did in Europe. And so many advanced technologies developed earlier in China or is the Islamic empire or uh, in India far earlier in those regions of the world. And then England took over. So if, if the explanation of geography is right, that somehow geography helped England and Western European nations take over around the 17th, 18th century, well, how was it that China and India were so dominant for a thousand years? The, the height of their mountains didn't suddenly change. The, uh, the, the, the rainfall didn't suddenly change. So that's kind of a contrarian take on something that was sort of a popular explanation. The cultures didn't suddenly change. And there's such a wide range of cultures across China, Islam, or India, and even across Western Europe. So how could it possibly be that this one particular culture was very conducive to this or that? So just as in, an exa in history, I just found a lot of the standard explanations very unsatisfying when you look at, for example, how the world became modern, why the birth of modern science began in Western Europe rather than these far more dominant, more advanced empires. So that's an example of just a contrarian take on history. It seems like it always gets back to, to your curiosity. And for, for the people interested in, in checking out the book, I think they should go over, and you did a great article on LinkedIn recently, and you break down the five laws of loon shots. And I know we covered a couple of them, uh, one being the LSC, but I would love to do your fifth and final law. Be a gardener, not a Moses. Can you expand upon this? Sure. I, you mentioned a contrarian view. So there's, there's a, a lot of uh, popular press on great leaders that they are somehow these, they stand on top of a mountain and they identify, they raise their staff and they identify the holy loon shot, the chosen project, whether it's the iPod or some other technology. And that that's what a great leader is. Be a Moses, stand on top of a mountain, order your people, this will be the project, this will not. And if you look at the course of what made truly great companies, long lasting companies successful, the leaders at the top never led in that way. They led more like a careful gardener. They balanced, they separated the artists working on the creative new projects from the soldiers who were turning those ideas into products and delivering them on time, on budget, on spec to customers. They separated their artists and their soldiers and their focus was on the transfer and ma managing the touch and balance between these two groups. And they didn't stand on top of a mountain 
and say, okay, this is going to be the great idea from this group, and this is what you need to do in that group. But they really focused on where innovation and new ideas breaks down, which is in the transfer from the artist to the soldiers, or in the transfer of feedback back from the soldiers to the artist. Whenever one of those two channels breaks down, you have a failure and companies stagnate or get killed. So the great leaders led less like a Moses and more like a gardener, managing the touch and balance between these artists and soldiers, making sure the little baby ideas were taken out of the nursery not too early and not too late and got the attention that they needed. So that's what I mean by be a gardener, not a Moses. Oh, so fascinating. I, I love reading both that article and the book largely in part beca because of that. And it helps these business leaders think differently and, and see how they can be doing things differently. So I, I really did appreciate your work. I'm very thankful you were able to come on and talk about this. I've got a few quick hit questions for you before we, okay. uh, we take off. What's one of the kindest things anyone's ever done for you? Um, I have had, it just recently, I've had a number of author friends just step way out of their way to do stuff that's been very helpful to me. They introduce me to people or uh, connect me with people, whether publishers or agents, or say good things about the book. So in so many ways, recently, people have been coming out of the woodworks to help me with this project, which has been enormously satisfying. And you know, thinking back even 20 years when I started my first biotech company, I had a number of very intelligent, thoughtful people who were a generation older than me help me out and give me good advice and uh, invest in the company and make sure that we were following the right track. So I've been, I think, very lucky over the past 20 or, or even more years in having people just somehow come out of the woodwork and help me either when a project was stumbling or when I was just beginning a project. So those are probably some of the kindest things people have done for me. What's the most unique thing someone did to leave an impression on you? Well, you know, I was recently on a podcast with Tim Ferriss, who I uh, knew 10 years ago. And um, he took me all, I was at South by Southwest. It was sort of a last minute thing. And he took me all around South by Southwest, including meeting movie, you know, filmmakers. And we just had such interesting and, and deep dialogues about subjects that I was not expecting to talk about, whether it was depression or emotion. And all of that was offline. And that was a very, uh, you know, it was a unique experience and a very, uh, I'd never been, for example, to this South by Southwest festival. I, you know, I hadn't spent much time with, you know, filmmakers or I hadn't even spent much time talking and thinking about depression. So all of those were, uh, kind of unique original experiences that I really appreciated. Well, Safi, for me, this is one of those experiences I really do appreciate. Uh, like I mentioned plenty of times, your new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Disease, and Transform Industries. I really did enjoy that, but I enjoyed this conversation so much more. And hopefully next time we can do this over a few cocktails and dive deeper on a few more topics. But where can the listeners best stay connected with you, check out your work, everything you've got going on? Uh, well, two places on my website, uh, loonshots.com. A Twitter, the handle is Safi Bacall. Great. Well, Safi, once again, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Sean. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. 
And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.